Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Seriously, the New Statesman podcast that takes pop culture seriously. I'm Caroline Crampton. And I'm Anna Leskovich. This week, we're talking about Louis Theroux's new documentary about polyamory and the Netflix film Outlaw King. Caroline has also been reading the GQ profile of Ezra Miller, so we'll be talking about how that went later in the show. Hello. Welcome back to another episode of Seriously. God, have we got some delights for you coming up on the show this week. Yes, this has been a particularly rich week, I feel, in men doing weird stuff. I want (laughs) to, I'm going to thematically link all the things as that. It's just a fun week for once, isn't it? Like actually fun, three fun things to talk about nothing that's trying to take itself too seriously which is great exactly yeah so the first of those three things is love without limits which is the first part of the new louis theroux documentary series altered states in it he explores polyamorous relationships and communities in portland oregon he follows several different couples and groups in an effort to understand how their non-monogamous relationships function yeah so i feel like Louis Theroux's done lots of programs in a similar vein that are about like unconventional relationships Mm. and that's what this episode is about and yeah so he follows three or four different polyamorous relationships Mm -hmm. um depending on how you look at it in in this show and he starts off by meeting these married couples Jerry and Heidi and Joe and Gretchen so Jerry and Heidi are married Joe and Gretchen are married and Joe and Heidi are also in a serious uh, long-term relationship. And the way he kind of goes about talking to these people about their relationships. First of all, we meet Heidi and Jerry and get a sense of their marriage. Then we see Joe and Heidi together. And then we get a sense um, of Gretchen's role in it all. So we kind of see it piece by piece. And the first thing we we see is is Heidi and Jerry and 
I don't know. I think uh, the narrative of the show tries to make it quite clear that they they're suspicious of whether Jerry is fully on board with mm. his wife um, having a second serious relationship alongside their marriage. And it's also Heidi makes it very clear that they're of equal importance to her in in her life, and she's yeah. also engaged to Joe. Which I just don't understand how that aspect of it works, and they don't really explore that fully because obviously it would not be legal for her to like have a second full state licensed marriage with joe but maybe the engagement is just a way of signifying that that's what they do if it was allowed or something yeah yeah and maybe it's a thing of like we hope that one day it will be allowed and therefore yeah we are waiting <laughs> um so but yeah you're right the immediate kind of louis theroux's documentaries always have a kind of through line or a narrative um which is part of the reason why they're generally really good because it's not just a case of showing you stuff scene by scene there is a theme and in this case I think the theme is this idea of compersion which is a word I did not know before I had watched this which apparently means the state of being really happy for someone else without any regard to your own happiness so a kind of selfless empathetic you know if it makes you happy then I'm happy kind of thing and so they in this polyamorous setting they apply that very specifically to the idea that if your wife or partner suddenly says actually I want to have another serious relationship with this person because I'm in love with them you as their initial partner are just like I'm happy that you're happy as opposed to but what about me um Mm, so that's the idea that they explore over and over again and in that first scenario it very much comes out well Louis I think comes out on the side of well this is clearly working really well for Heidi but is it working for Jerry? Because he doesn't have any other relationships. It's not like he's also seeing other people. He's just seeing Heidi, but Heidi is also seeing Joe. Yeah, and he kind of, in this very heartbreaking tone, keeps insisting like, well, when I meet, and it is a when, not an if, mm-hmm. when I meet my person, you're like, oh God, what if he, he's maybe just not going to? And well, I don't know. Also, he, also he, the, like, there were a couple of times when I was, I had a follow-up question that I wanted Louis to ask that he then didn't ask. And my follow-up question in that instance is like, well, are you dating? Like, are you trying to meet other people, mm-hmm. Jerry? Are you mm-hmm. on apps? Are you going to stuff where you might meet people? Or is this like your processing, coping way of feeling quite lonely is to just be like well I'm going to meet other people so it's fine that she's met other people but you're not Mm -hmm. actually actively doing anything about that yeah and there's this kind of tone that I feel like a lot of the people in this documentary share especially the people who are kind of in a more like um observant role in the relationship of watching their partner you know the people who Mm. are experiencing all the compersion for their partners but aren't necessarily um in polyamorous relationships themselves uh they have this shared tone that's very like you know louis will ask a question that's like well doesn't that make you jealous or you know it's kind mm. of a maybe slightly combative question and they'll all be like hmm? no no <laughs> me no like that in, in this kind of tone of like what i've never thought about that before and no i'm kind of on a higher plane like no i don't i don't really understand and it's this kind of sunny tone that i in a, perhaps in out of prejudice associate really strongly with defensiveness and mm. denial and an unwillingness to like explore those those dark feelings and so for me jerry is very much suffering from that uh denial and that's that's definitely what it's seen. and obviously the the documentary is trying to encourage you to feel that way so maybe i'm just gullible but the fact that every partner in this documentary whether it's gretchen or jerry 
or um, there's like a group of very kind of like hip, attractive young people um, all living in a like commune together. And one of one of these guys is having a baby with his, I want to say, girlfriend, <laughs> um, sweetie, love, as she would call it. Um, and they're having a baby, but she is dating seriously with other people and he he's also shares that tone of like what no oh no it's compersion i'm fine Mm. and that i find really like okay there's got to be a reason why you're all doing this thing that i associate so heavily with defensiveness yeah i know what you mean it it does they have the like slightly blank faces of people who are like theoretically very signed up to the concepts that they're espousing but they're having to like repress some instinctive emotional reactions Mm. in order to be able to say those things but as you say I'm aware that that could be my own like ignorance and prejudice speaking and maybe they are just totally fine because I definitely like the little I knew about sort of poly relationships before I watched this show what my main like takeaway from talking to people about it who had done it was that it's a lot of communication like that's the Mm. fundamental thing that underlies it is that it can totally work in like my friend's experiences but you have to be like super talkative and you have to be very organized. Like I've, I've had one friend who's like, we have calendars. We have like Google calendars mm, for this. Yeah, yeah. Um, because if for a second someone feels like their amount of time with a shared partner is like slipping or they're not seeing them as much or they're not getting their best time or whatever and resentment breeds and they don't then talk about it, then the whole thing can just collapse. Completely. And it seems to me like it would just be so complicated. All relationships are complicated. Like that's not um, something that I'm saying in dismissal of polyamorous relationships, but relationships are so complicated in terms of things like, yeah, the figuring out how to spend time with your partner and making sure your partner feels valued and, you know, listening and communication. Like those for me are all the really hard parts of relationships. And those are the parts that kind of get doubled. In mm-hmm. polyamorous relationships, and polyamory, polyamory is not about like sleeping around. That's that's no. not what it's about. It's not about. It's not like an open relationship where it's like about encouraging spontaneity and like, you know, just going with the flow. And like, yeah, maybe you meet like three people that week, and it's great. It's about having like more than one very serious partner. Yeah, exactly. And the seriousness of that is underlined in the groups that this documentary focuses on by the fact that, as you say, like one person is quite heavily pregnant at the point at which Louis filming her. The couples we mentioned at the beginning, um, Heidi and Jerry and Joe and Gretchen, they both have children. Like the, there are children from the marriages. And again, that kind of raised questions in my head that whilst Heidi and Joe are off having their like loved up time together, Gretchen and Jerry are like individually caring for the children of taking those, on more childcare, those marriages yeah. yeah so I was one question I had was like you know how does childcare fit into this and uh that didn't really necessarily get explored but I'm interested in that um I remember a while ago reading um the British politician Shirley Williams's autobiography and oh, this wasn't a poly relationship by any means but she was like because when I was first married very young we were so poor we actually lived in a house with I think two other couples who were a similar age to us and we all Mm. sort of had children at roughly the same time and actually I would highly recommend this arrangement to anyone in that situation because 
it meant that the, there were like six people to do childcare instead of two and all the children could be like taken to school by one person thereby freeing mm-hmm. up others to go to work and do what they wanted mm-hmm. which isn't the same as this at all but it it just kind of rung a bell with me it's like okay so like group child rearing is totally a thing and can work really well but actually what you've got here felt like the opposite like people being isolated yeah because there are two family homes and it's just mm-hmm. like people being kind of split between them and yeah there was a moment where um joe i think said like in his mind he'd like it to be everyone under one roof and every, every every other person in that relationship dynamic was like that would not work that would not be good yeah though the separation was important because and louis did try and explore that with jerry as like how would you feel if you walked in on them and jerry yeah, and was clearly not good, clearly not good. <laughs> and, and then the other thing that made me feel slightly negative about that relationship was that at the end when he was doing his kind of wrap-up chat with them Jerry repeatedly said that like you know if Heidi and Joe wanted to invite me into their physical relationship I would be very open to that and Heidi was just immediately like no absolutely not never happening and I was like hang on a second how is this happening for the first time on camera but also like what about compassion for what he wants um you know he's clearly interested in exploring that and you're just immediately being like no never I'm not sharing when he has done the opposite for you um you're not even saying like, well, I'm happy to try that and see how it goes. Like she was just like, no. Um, <laughs> and I was like, no, this this doesn't seem to be a two way street with you. And that's not a reflection on like polyamory as a concept. It's just like their no. specific scenario felt a bit off. And that's why it's so hard with documentaries like this, isn't it? Because like relationships are so fundamentally individual and personal and you're not actually going to go away and find like a good or perfect example of like a polyamorous Mm. relationship you're just going to find all these like weird flawed relationships that are probably going to spark very strong reactions in people because like when you see other people's relate like for a start you don't really see other people's relationships up close very often and when you do I feel a lot of the time you can just be like oh weird their intimacy like no not I don't know exactly so it can be quite like I don't know it's quite hard to make a documentary about polyamory that isn't going to like make people think like ew weird in some way because that's just what it's like when you put relationships under yeah. a microscope they often seem really dysfunctional and yeah. terrible <laughs> I don't think you can form any conclusions about poly as like a good or bad thing from this documentary and that's not the point right it's just supposed to be exploring these specific scenarios but also another thing that doesn't tend towards that conclusion at all is the fact that there's this interlude where one of the people from one of the groups that he's talking to takes Louis to a kind of like sensual eating party (laughs) where everybody takes their tops off and like feeds each other strawberries and sort of does a lot of you know touching Um, it's actually grim it's it's like completely grim I could I could barely watch it same again it's the kind of thing where maybe in the moment if I was blindfolded and someone was feeding me something yummy and touching me like maybe I'd enjoy it who knows but like watching other people do that is just so so cringe especially Louis who is made deeply uncomfortable by the whole thing and when later afterwards I think when someone asked him like how did it go he was like it was just a lot of cheese people kept giving me cheese he and then the woman was like well maybe that was your opportunity to voice no more cheese and he was like <laughs> yeah maybe <laughs> yeah um but yeah the- if you want to see Louis Theroux with his top off grinding around eating cheese. weird strawberries I guess it's what 45 minutes in mm-hmm. so <laughs> that I found kind of yeah cringe and also a bit irrelevant because whilst it's like that kind of activity is like specifically the taste of one of the people that he's come into contact 
with through making this show. It's not mm. an intrinsic part of polyamory at all or necessarily like a mainstream part of it. So it mm. felt a little bit like this is just there for the viewing pleasure of watching Louis feel uncomfortable rather than... A hundred percent. Like there's always got to be that bit in these documentaries where it's like, and now awkward Louis gets sexy. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And like they always do that whenever there's like some sort of sex uh, element to the the doc. So Mm -hmm. yeah, I kind of respect it. It's, It's kind of cynical, but I respect it. Yeah. And I think it, it makes for good TV in a way. But um, yeah, it doesn't contribute to your understanding of the issue at all. Um, But still, interesting film. I learned things, I think. Definitely. For a couple of decades between the First and Second World Wars, something mysterious happened. There were murders in country houses, on golf courses, in far-flung parts of the globe and quaint English villages. No fictional character was safe. Because these events were all fictional, the plots of novels that flooded the market in the 1920s and 30s. People couldn't get enough of all of the inventive ways that writers like Agatha Christie, Dorothy L. Sayers, and more could think of for people to die. This period came to be known as the golden age of detective fiction, and for good reason. So that's what I'm going to be doing in this podcast, telling the stories that lurk in the shadows of the famous detective novels. If you've ever stayed up late reading under the covers to find out who done it, then this podcast is for you. Find us at shedoneitshow.com, on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram as SheDoneItShow, and in all major podcast apps. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. So the next thing we're going to talk about is Outlaw King, a historical action film about the 14th century Battle of Bannockburn between Scotland and England. It stars Chris Pine from Wonder Woman as Robert the Bruce 
and Florence Pugh, who we talked about last week in The Little Drummer Girl, as his wife Elizabeth. It was co-written and directed by the Scottish director David Mackenzie and released straight to Netflix. Um, so you can stream it in the comfort of your own homes mm-hmm. nationwide. In fact, I probably worldwide. Yeah, so handsome Wonder Woman's Chris Pine playing leader of Scottish fight for independence. And it is, to me, trying very hard to position itself in the Game of Thrones sort of landscape. It's within the first hour we get like full frontal male nudity, uh, kind of these like dueling scenes where it's like two people who are maybe on the same side, but maybe not because there's underlying tensions when the sword fighting gets too intense and like um, severed limbs attached to and crucifixes dis- and sort of shock disembowelments in churches and stuff like that yeah yeah it's like it's got it all um also like woman making feminist stand for the weak hashtag feminist princess like there's a lot of <laughs> yeah. those vibes in there as well and one of the main roles is the future edward ii who at the beginning of the sh- of the film is the current prince of wales um played by one of our favorite rising actors billy howell we've talked about loads of billy howell Mm. things over the history of seriously i feel like we could do we could be like his imdb hype people um (laughs) but he yeah he kind of in that sort of game of thronesy evil villain um what was he called the bastard in in game of thrones i can't even remember oh i can't remember but something who is horrible to his wife's answer yeah, in that kind of role of like, like literally within the first five minutes, he shouts at the top of his lungs, you sniveling fool, shut up, <laughs> yeah. you sniveling fool. And he's, and he's this, just like, horrendous bowl cut haircut. Yeah, I was going to say, he's just got the haircut of a really unpleasant person. He's in... so handsome, Billy Howell as well. And they've just given him this like awful it's haircut. So, so ugly. He looks completely terrible. But it's, it's also, it is the haircut of, in a, like a historical sword drama, it's it's the haircut of the worst person. It's it, the haircut of cowardice. Yeah, he might as well be wearing a sign on his chest that says, like, I'm the cowardly asshole," um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Because that's what the hair is saying. Yeah, so... The bowl cut of shame. As you can guess from how we're talking about this, like, this is quite silly, this film. Um, yes, but not absurd. Like, self-consciously so, I don't think. It's I'm trying, not sure it is. No, I think it's trying quite hard to be, like, serious historical epic um it obviously isn't helped at all by the fact that it's basically covering the same historical events as Braveheart mm-hmm. and so anyone who's seen like Mel Gibson running up a hill shouting freedom is already primed with that in their mind when they see these same events because yeah Chris Pine is playing Robert the Bruce um although in Braveheart Mel Gibson is playing William War- Wallace who you don't really meet um, other than like as a severed limb in this film it's yeah it's the same characters and it's the same events and it's the same yeah i just it does vibe. rest on the knowledge that you know who william wallace is quite yeah, heavily it does. his first mention is like oh no look what they've done to william wallace and his like leg is on this like i don't know <laughs> on plinth. a spike yeah it's yeah weird. and everyone's like no this is so terrible and no one's ever like oh no that's uh scottish hero william wallace's leg like he could be <laughs> on either side for all like if you don't know anything about the history or haven't seen Braveheart it's just like who exactly <laughs> why yeah. do we care about this leg apparently there is a cut scene where like William Wallace is like mm. being really friendly with Chris with Robert the Bruce Chris Pine and so that you like get a sense of the extent of their bond and they like cut it so yes the, the film, audience 
It's just like, what? <laughs> it's interesting. So the critical response to this film has been quite mixed. Um, mm. It premiered at the Toronto Film Festival and I think critics were generally a bit meh. Netflix picked it up on the strength of that, but they've cut 17 minutes from it into the version that you can now stream. And that scene is one of the things that went, possibly because it, I don't know, it was just they felt it was too long or, you know, that scene didn't have fighting in it and therefore was deemed boring mm. or something. But um, yeah, it does mean that the, the sort of linear chronology of the film is a little bit shaken, I think. It's um, really weird because Netflix is not a platform that I associate with like economy of length. No, of I show. don't know why they would care. It's not like tightly cut most of its shows. No. Like, the binging element of its platform and like the lack of scheduling and advertising has allowed it to kind of create these quite bloated programs and films often. So for this to just for the sake of 17 minutes, it's not like, oh God, this film was four hours. Like no. for, the, for the sake of 17 minutes, it seems like quite a bizarre decision to to edit it so ruthlessly. I mean, I'm not saying that those 17 minutes would have made it would have saved the film or anything, because it's clearly quite a ridiculous film. But it's just strikes me as slightly odd that Netflix of all platforms would be the one to decide to cut it down. Yeah, no, I agree. It is really weird, especially when, as you say, it does make the film less understandable by people who aren't like well-versed in the history of it or have seen the other films about it. Um, So yeah, that's strange. One thing I quite liked about it, which I thought was good, was that the beginning of it, I don't know how long it is, but it feels long. There's this, this one unbroken shot where... Chris Pine and the other Scottish lords are having to sort of swear fealty to the English king inside a tent. And then it, the camera like pans with him outside where he's fighting with Nasty Bolkart Man and then back into the tent and out again to watch a huge catapult destroy something. And it's sort of this one long tracking shot in the way that pretentious directors enjoy. Um, Caroline, I didn't even notice that. Did you not? No. Yeah, it doesn't how bad? cut. It doesn't cut between the um the tent and the outside. Yeah. Just... I would have just told you that those were like three different scenes. So <laughs> and it <laughs> well, rap on the knuckles for me there, but I, I had no idea. So they don't make a big deal about it in the way that it does the camera doesn't ever come in like tightly on anybody's head or shoulders mm, or anything mm. in the way that you do when it's following someone. But um but yeah, it and it, I read a few other reviews that confirmed that that yeah, it is just one one entire shot. Um but that catapult bit was weird. Yeah. They have a really massive catapult fire thing and then the 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 king says like, "Oh, I just had um we it took 3 months to build, so we want to use it." And I was like, "Wait, is that like a meta joke where like we just watched this kind of pointless but obviously very expensive shot where <laughs> like fa- a flaming cannonball like soars across the sky. Is that like, oh well, we, we had wanted it, to so build we did this, it. So. Yeah. <laughs> or is it just like, oh, this is just to let you know that this king is a bit of a nutter?" I don't I can't really tell what the point was. But, I didn't yeah. really understand it either, especially because the rest of the film is not super CGI heavy. They've mostly in the battle scenes, one of the things that critics have actually been quite positive about is that the battle scenes are quite quote realistic in that they they quite they're quite chaotic and muddy and gory and horrible and just no it's just not clear a lot of the time what's happening or who is who because it's a lot of like men with straggly hair in long robes wielding swords in bogs which I think generally people feel is a more accurate representation of what warfare was like at that time rather than the slightly sanitized Game of Thrones charging about version yeah completely I also think it's funny because like this is the kind of film where you can tell 
as you say, that there's been loads, there's like an obsession with authenticity from a mm. like props perspective and a, and a setting perspective and all that stuff. So you, it's a kind of thing where, do you remember when Wolf Call came out and they were like, we spent £30,000 on, <laughs> on candles, candles and yeah. every scene was lit by an original candle from the time. <laughs> You're like, great, no one can fucking tell because it's just candles. And like, that's how I feel about this. It's like they've put, they've put loads of like money and in, into like authenticity and then they've just thrown a completely unbelievable script on top of it. Like, yep. this, this is fine though. Like, <laughs> yeah, but, and they've come, although I have to say Chris Pine, as like sword wielding action heroes go, is good in this. Uh, his Scottish accent is not horrible, although I'm sure real Scottish people will still find it not good. So yeah, why go to all of that trouble and then not cast like an actual Scottish person? A real Scottish person. <laughs> or just like, even just have like a belie- believable dialogue. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's which... just like crazy. I enjoyed the bit where like two people flirt over a bowl of porridge. <laughs> That was, that was just was kind of like good. unnecessarily like, mm, give me some porridge baby mm, I also, give me that bowl and I also like, enjoyed the um, thistle based foreplay between yes. uh, <laughs> Chris Pine and Florence it's a metaphor <laughs> rub this thistle on your tittle <laughs> that was very funny um, so yeah it, it's, it's very silly and it doesn't realise that it is which makes it perhaps all the more enjoyable um, one thing i think it was in peter bradshaw's review in the guardian but i can't 100 percent remember is the the way they've shot the landscape and stuff in this is really beautiful like scotland looks lovely in this film but, yeah but like yawn <laughs> yeah i know it's not it's not worth watching just for that and also that it's kind of disappointing on a small screen like i can imagine if you saw it in a cinema that kind of cinematography would make a bigger impact. But like watching it on my laptop, I was like, yep, mountains, skip. Yeah. Next bit. Well, I don't um, think we've mentioned the silliest bit though, mm. which is when um, Billy Howe, in his bowl haircut of shame, goes on like a weird, angry rampage in his own hall where he's like oh, yeah. drinking loads of red wine and spilling it all over himself and just screaming endlessly. And he holds up two dead swans by the neck <laughs> and goes, Buy these swans! I will have vengeance! And that was just iconic. And then just like, just rage it, like just goes on a complete drunk rager. Yeah, that was great. Yeah, it did, it did make it seem like he wanted revenge for the swans. Yeah. Like the swans' death. How dare you kill my swans? They're also like, in enormous swans and then there are later more swans and they're not as big and I'm like wow <laughs> they, they really killed off their biggest fattest most sacrificial swans for that moment um yeah so I think probably my guess is the reason why this film didn't get a proper cinematic release is because you would want it to get a kind of um like British indie interest so because of it being Scottish and stuff like do you remember that Macbeth film that we reviewed a while ago um which one? The one that was like super pagany. Um, possibly it had famous actor in. Was it Tom Hiddleston? I cannot remember. Um, but well, it was there, like, there is a there's Lady Macbeth with Florence Pugh in, but I haven't seen that. Not that one. No, it was it was a like sword based one. But um, anyway, that was kind of very much presented as like a British film about a British thing, mm. um, and therefore did get a cinematic release. Whereas mm. I think. No one here would go and see this film unless it was deliberately to take the piss. And like, why? Why? Unless it has some level of authenticity. But Yeah, also the humour really drops off halfway mm-hmm. through. Like the first hour I was like, this is brilliant. This is so stupid and funny. And, and then, then like, it just tries to be serious. Just battles, yeah. And you're like, oh, I wanted more jokes. I wanted more I jokes. I like the, the final climactic um, 
defeat has some good bants in it right at the end but apart from that it's just it becomes kind of humorless which is a real shame which is a real shame um although i did see an article or several articles that were saying that um like scotland is bracing for the tourist effect from outlaw king because apparently outlander and I guess is some of Game of Thrones filmed in Scotland. I, think, I can't I remember. Scotland, I think um, Game of Thrones in Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland. That's sure. it. Um, yeah. Apparently, Outlander for Scotland particularly um, has resulted in lots of Americans turning up wanting to know oh where bits God. of it were filmed. Caroline, and, uh, they're gonna they're gonna crawl all over your your yeah, that's idyllic. Where, that's where I go on holiday. holiday. Like, how dare they? Um, <laughs> how dare they? Don't they know Caroline goes there to be alone? I, I know. So, um, yeah, not not sure about that. I mean, is this film really going to have such a cultural impact that people are going to do that? I don't know. I think I it's don't know. Super I think forgettable. It might be over before next weekend. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> So last week, I recommended that Caroline read uh, GQ's profile with Ezra Miller. I think the profile was by a writer called Ali Jones. And she basically goes and interviews Ezra Miller on his farm in Vermont. Mm -hmm. Is it in Vermont? Um, Yes, Vermont, yeah. And that's where he lives. And she kind of says early on that Ezra Miller tells her that he lives on a farm in Vermont. And she's like, oh, yeah, yeah, like all celebrities who say that they live in, you know, this one holiday home that they go to very occasionally. But no, he actually does seem to genuinely live there. So she goes and spends time with him and he kind of tries to birth a goat and sing <laughs> songs to his chickens and seems genuinely quite invested in this weird, like, not hippie because he specifically tells you not to use that word about him, but this this kind of bohemian lifestyle he has with his band on this farm in the middle of nowhere. If this profile also contains one of my favourite sentences, full stop, where it goes, the goats are listening to NPR when Miller carefully opens the barn door. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a whole world in that sentence. Yeah, that is amazing. Isn't it? What it's... are the goats listening to? How can, how can you tell that they are actually listening to it? Like, I just want to know everything about it. So yeah, I enjoyed this greatly. Much discussion of goats and goat rearing, um, which was very interesting. Also, as I think you mentioned when you recommended this to me last week, the photographs that accompany this profile are all of Miller just wearing like lovely dresses and long coats and amazing lipstick and stuff um, because he defines as genderqueer and just likes to wear all kinds of clothes. Yeah. And he looks fantastic and it's it's an interesting profile because I actually think that Ezra Miller should be really, really annoying. And he does a lot of like, quote, eccentric things. And I don't just mean yes. that he like wears dresses because like, can I, can know, I just so do a lot of people. Give you the quote that encapsulates that. Yes, please. Um, art makes art. We are but puppets for the great art puppeteer. <laughs> yeah, he says a lot of <laughs> that things like is- that kind of annoying and you can like watch a video of him answering questions in a unicorn onesie and he you know making weird music happen out of glass bowls with kind of weird weird tools so by all rights he should kind of be a bit insufferable but he's kind of got a charisma and like I don't know like he seems genuinely fairly empathetic and to care about other people like it doesn't seem like he's saying a lot of what he says just for show even though he does say there's like another quote in there where he says something like we artists are sensitive people and therefore Mm. urban environments are very trying for us and you're like no 
just be quiet. No, don't say that. <laughs> but but he is, there's something I really, really like about him. I think he's really charismatic. I think he's really interesting in terms of like, you know, he's kind of, I, he's on the cusp of this like style of Hollywood or big celebrity that's kind of like redefining masculinity in small ways. Like obviously kind of like feminine looking pretty boys have been like a staple of Hollywood since like, I don't know, James Dean or something you can probably trace it back to. So I'm not saying he's doing anything completely revolutionary by being like high cheeked boned and slightly androgynous. But I saw a tweet the other day that was like, said something like Ezra Miller, Harry Styles and Timothy Chalamet when they hear that, uh, dazed is looking for a feminine cover star <laughs> and then it had like a clip of this of super nanny being like you're in a crisis and i'm on my way <laughs> um and it made me really laugh but i do think there's some kind of like crossover in their hollywood brands at the moment in terms of like yeah being more feminine and more experimental in what they wear and just um like being quite sweet and empathetic and not being like hyper masculine in traditional ways and there was also a big interview in um, in Dazed last week between Harry Styles and Timothy Chalamet, mm. where they talked about like, like I really wasn't expecting that interview to be particularly good because though I love both Harry Styles and <laughs> Timothy Chalamet with all my heart, I don't know if like celebrities interviewing celebrities is like always produces great interviews no. and like also the both of them are really enthusiastic often about like really banal things like yeah i just love my fans and it's like okay yeah but like we want to hear a bit more than that from you but there what there are a couple of in really interesting moments in that interview and one of them is where they talk about whether what what kind of responsibility they feel to portray masculinity in in new ways um and so it was interesting to me that those two interviews came out kind of in the same week um because I kind of do see a parallel between their careers. Yeah, I think that's accurate. The part that I is still a question mark for me is that whilst I can totally get that it is fun and interesting and nice for these people to do interviews like this and present themselves in that particular way, in the way they dress and the way they do social media and whatever, does it make any difference to how they conduct themselves in their careers? Mm -hmm. You know, do they go to auditions dressed like this mm -hmm. or do they, you know, put on their kind of I'm I'm a male star outfit uniform yeah. for that? You know, I and quite possibly I, I don't I'm not accusing any of them of being inauthentic or anything like that. I'm just interested to know, like, does it kind of extend to how they they choose to act? I mean, no, I know totally. I think that's a completely fair criticism. And that's just something I think we'll have to like see how their careers play out from here to see if that's true. Like, do they, are any of them as soon as Marvel come knocking going to just drop everything and like bulk up for a superhero <laughs> film? For and instance. it's also easier for them as kind of like white, hmm. see, I don't want to say cis in case like, because obviously Ezra Miller defines as genderqueer, but like they, they certainly pass as like hmm. cis, white, straight, guys and like there's a lot of speculation about like harry styles sexuality and i'm sure there is about ezra miller's sexuality and so on but for the most part they can just walk into a space and be like oh yeah there's that like handsome straight cis white mm -hmm. hollywood star so they're, they're able to then go on a cover in in like lipstick and a dress and it to be like oh provocative rather than like this yeah. is how this person dresses all the time and so i think that definitely does make it as you say easier for them but the more that that happens, hopefully the more that it then makes it easier for other mm. people to to live no, their absolutely. lives and present how they and, want to. 
and I especially think um, someone like Timothy Chalamet, who is because of like the year he had last year, essentially, and the films that he was in and all of the award nominations he got. He's the kind of person who's very much in a place where he's being cast in like serious highbrow films. Um, And I'm sure is very much seen as like a future Oscar shoe in and all of that kind of thing. And yeah, for someone like him to choose to dress the way he does and stuff, that does feel a little bit more risky. Yeah, he doesn't some... he doesn't dress super femininely, but I guess like with this dazed cover with the mm. earring, like he's got like a big dangly earring, and um, yeah, I can certainly imagine him going even further down that that road. I hope he does. Before. I hope he does. Yeah, and I hope that it's not just. And as I say, there's no indication that it is. I hope that it's not just a kind of um, well, this plays Brief well trend. on Instagram yeah. type thing. I hope this is just this is how we are and how we choose to be all the time you know so uh what about for next week caroline if you've got a wreck for me yeah so i am going to suggest that you watch the american sitcom great news okay. which i actually don't know a super amount about the provenance of it um it was co-produced by uh, tina fey and robert carlock who are you know, the creative team behind stuff like 30 Rock and um, Kimmy Schmidt. And it was written by Tracy Wigfield, who was a writer for 30 Rock. So it's very much in the like Tina Fey universe, mm-hmm. How is how I tend to think of it. Um, and it's a sitcom set on a TV news station. Um, it has Nicole Ritchie in it um, as one of the like anchors of the, the show. Interesting, And also some like Tina Fey show regulars, people like um, Rachel Dratch, who's you know in lots of that kind of stuff yeah it's as, as I say I don't really know like was it made for Netflix or was it made for something else and it's ended up on Netflix I don't know but I find it kind of comforting it's very much my kind of basic humor the like Tina Fey humor mm-hmm. um so I've been really enjoying it recently as like a kind of good thing to put on when you're not sure what else you want to watch okay so great. I'm interested to know how it strikes you well I'll check it out Thanks for listening to this episode of Seriously, the pop culture podcast from the New Statesman. If you enjoyed the show, why not subscribe to make sure you never miss another episode? We're available in all the usual places you get podcasts, including on Apple Podcasts, where you could leave us a rating and a review if you fancy. It makes us happy and it also helps other people find the show. If you'd like to come and see us in person, check out the events page of our website, seriouslypod.com events. Details of our next pop culture quiz and anything else we're doing will appear there. We're available many other places on the internet, including on Twitter, Facebook and Tumblr. We're Seriously Pod on all of them. Follow us to keep up with what we're up to or to chat to other listeners about things you've enjoyed on the show. We love getting your recommendations for things we should feature on the show or hearing your thoughts on what we've already discussed. Get in touch on social media or email us on seriouslypod at gmail.com. And if you feel strongly that more pop culture needs to be taken seriously, spread the word and tell your friends and family about the podcast. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping 
and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.